when I worked for President Obama at the uh, US Department of Education. I was there at a time when schools had very little connectivity in the classroom. We had about 15% of schools actually had Wi-Fi. At the end of the Obama administration, we had 98% of schools connected to broadband. That's a moment that I feel excited to be able to point to. to. Welcome to Lead With Your Brand, the podcast that explores exceptional career success stories, inspiring and insightful personal brand journeys that answer the question, are you coffee or are you Starbucks? Fascinating conversations with leaders about their career breakthroughs from entertainment, tech, media, and more. You'll learn how they've turned up the volume on their brand to unlock success. Firsthand, uncensored, and real, as told by people who've been there and plenty of inspiration and practical tools to help you lead with your brand every day as you drive toward your next career breakthrough. And now, here's your host, personal branding expert, diversity advocate, and keynote speaker, Jason Patria. Hey everybody, Jason Patria here, and you are listening to the Lead With Your Brand podcast, which is the podcast for folks just like you who are looking to turn up the volume, show your value, and lead to your next career breakthrough. We've got a fabulous show today because I have one of my buddies on. It is Richard Kulata, the CEO of the International Society for Technology in Education and author of the new book, Digital for Good. But before we get to Richard, let's talk a little bit about your brand. I want you to remember that your brand is not about you. That's right. I said it. Your brand is not about you. Your brand has to be about everybody else who consumes you. You need to think about your career audience. Who are those folks that are going to flock to you? Who are those folks that are going to promote you? Who are those folks that are your users? Because your brand needs to be authentic to you and it needs to resonate and attract your career audience. You know, one of the biggest flaws in branding is just putting a stake in the ground and saying, this is exactly who I am and I'm not going to change anything. And while I want you to be authentic, I want you to be your best authentic self in a way that resonates and brings other people in. Because ultimately, that's what your brand needs to do. Your brand needs to help you with your career strategy. So think for yourself. Who are your users and how is your brand appealing or repelling those folks? Well, let's dive in and meet our guest, Richard Collada. He is an internationally recognized leader in technology and learning. He currently serves as the CEO of the International Society for Technology in Education, a nonprofit serving education leaders in over 120 countries. Now, prior to joining the International Society for Technology, he was appointed by President Barack Obama to lead the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Educational Technology. In this role, he led the development of a national education technology plan and helped bridge the gap between tech developers and the tough problems faced by parents today. He is also the author of a brand new book, Digital for Good, Raising Kids to Thrive in an Online World. We'll be back in just a couple of moments with Richard Kulana. 
For over 25 years, Jason has coached, trained, and developed thousands of leaders and executives, helping them achieve their next career breakthrough. He's a featured speaker at global conferences and companies to help everyone bring their best authentic self to work, show their value, and lead with their brand every day. Get more tips and tools at leadwithyourbrand.com. And we are back. I am super excited about today's guest. It is Richard Kulata, who is the CEO of the International Society for Technology in Education. Richard, what is going on? Hey, Jason. I'm just excited to be hanging out with you here today. Well, I am thrilled to have you because we've got to talk about your new book for one thing. Plus, I need to to catch up and, and hear about all the fabulous things you're working on. I can't wait. Where, where do we start? Well, first off, Richard, help me out. When you first meet someone, how do you explain who you are and what you do? <laughs> that is a, that is a process that's certainly ongoing. I, t- I keep trying to figure out a way to, to capture it. I try to say that, you know, I am about innovation. And by innovation, I mean trying to find non-traditional approaches to getting things done in places where other people get stuck by a traditional approach that may not work. And that could be, I've tended to focus on education. I've focused on helping state and federal government do work better. I've worked in, in corporate uh, environments. So, so it's less about the, it's about the, the what and more about the how. And usually by then they've sort of given up and gone off to talk to somebody else. And then I I move on. But that's my attempt (laughs) to try to explain what I do. Well, you do so many cool things, which is really one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you, because it feels like your entire career is really at the intersection of technology and education, which is super cool. So, Richard, when you look back at your years throughout your career, for you, what have been some of the biggest breakthrough moments where you really, you know, look back and say, hey, that was a defining moment for my career? Yeah, it's it's actually a difficult question to answer because my uh, the whole approach that I take to my work and and uh, you know my my brand would be probably the language you would use for this is an iterative approach, right? So so small steps. I think one of the biggest challenges that we have a lot of times is people try to tee up a, this big reveal, the big ribbon cutting moment, and uh, and often that never happens. And I found that that I can and, and bring my teams along much farther if we just smoke, focus on sort of small little iterative steps. And then before you know it, really amazing things happen. So that's cool. And it makes it hard to point to like a specific breakthrough moment because it's sort of this long series of, of, of steps. That said, you know, in order to, to, to give you a more satisfying answer, a couple of things. <laughs> I feel like there are some big problems that, that I've been able to help uh, tackle. One of them was, uh, you know, when I worked for President Obama at the uh, U.S. Department of Education, I was there at a time when schools had very little connectivity in the classroom. We had about 15% of schools actually had like Wi-Fi, you know, broadband in the classroom. And so one of the projects that I helped lead was an effort to try to get connectivity to U.S. schools. And at the end of the Obama administration, we had 98% of schools connected to broadband. So that was a big thing. Now, that was not all me. That was a whole team that was working on this. But that's a moment that I feel excited to be able to point to. 
Yeah. And Richard, so let me just ask you, because you throw that out like, oh, you know, when we were in the Obama administration, right? But but you were appointed by President Barack Obama to lead the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Educational Technology. I mean, right. how do you even get an invitation and an appointment like that? Yeah, I have no idea how it happened. I think maybe they called the wrong number, honestly, uh, and didn't figure it out till I was already there. No, I, you know, I was I had done some work for the CIA. I helped after 9-11 rethink the way that we were approaching training in the U.S. intelligence community. There were some approaches that were really outdated. And after if, if anybody read the 9-11 report, one of the yeah. things that was pointed out there was that not being up to speed on, on effective training was one of the challenges, one of the reasons that that there were some failures in in the uh, intelligence community. So so I had done a bunch of work on that. It was fascinating. It was really interesting to be there. But then I realized that the long term working in intelligence was not was not what I was going to do. And so I had a chance to go and spend some time working with the U.S. Senate. And while I was there, I was pushing on some new education policies, and I and I guess for some reason that that got on the the you know got me on the radar screen of of uh, people who were looking for uh, the team that was going to come in and lead the Department of Ed for President Obama. Yeah, and I I mean it must have been a super cool experience. I remember coming and visiting you, Elliot Maisie, our our mutual friend, and and you set up set up a, a time for a bunch of corporate learning folks to come in and talk to the Department of Education and and I believe labor too. Yes, we did. It was actually great because one of the things that I was doing, and this is this is something that I I, I do a lot, is sometimes when you're in a you're dealing with a challenge or a problem, it, you're a little too close to it. There's emotion involved. There's You're too familiar with it. And so sometimes one of the most helpful things you can do is actually bring in people from other analogous sectors, right? So people who deal with corporate learning, people who are at labor, people who are, how are you dealing with a similar problem, right? And learn from that. And sometimes then then you can go back to the whatever challenges you're dealing with and, and you come in with sort of new, new language, new ideas, and that helps move things along a bit. So that was what we were doing. And it was great to have you be part of that because it helped us just push our thinking for this, the, our team at the Department of Ed. Yeah. And wh- what are some other moments in your career that felt important or as breakthrough moments for you? Yeah, so one there's another fun one. This was uh, when I was working for Gina Raimondo, who was the governor of Rhode Island at the time, and I was the chief innovation officer for the state of Rhode Island. First first time there had even been that role it was a new role, and my job was just to like get things done in ways that that traditional government approaches tended to not do well. Right? There are some things that traditional government does really well. Accelerating innovation, you know, is, is not one of them, right? So I was, <laughs> right. I was there to say, like, how can we help use different approaches to get some things done? So one of the challenges that we were looking at is we, we felt very strongly, both the governor and I felt very strongly that we needed to be teaching computer science and coding in all of our schools because because tech today, learning to code and learning to to you know use you know technology, it, it's not about just getting a job at, at Google or something. I'm sure some people will get a job at Google, but the but the real reason that we need to be learning the the skill, the language of coding is because every problem, every tough problem that you can think of that we're dealing with, the solution involves at least somewhere along the way code, right? Almost everything yeah. has, has technology as some part of the solution. And we were not, we are, we were not preparing our, our kids, young people to have experience in programming, in thinking in code. And so, so what we were doing is we were, we were essentially limiting their ability to be future problem solvers. Yeah. 
And so that's where we said, look, we need to have every kid. I don't care if you're going into arts, into sciences, into, you know, any of the, whatever the career engineering, you need to have at least some basic understanding of how to program and design computers so that they can work for you in solving problems. Well, we, um, we realized that in order to do this in a traditional way, you would have to go out and probably pass some law that said, we're going to do this in all schools, then get some budget, which is probably another year, and then get schools on board, which is probably another year. And then, you know, it was like this three to five year timeline. And we said, this is just not, this is not what we want to do. We want to show how we can do things faster and in more, a more innovative way. So the governor said, go, go figure this out. Well, what we did is we took a Google map, you know, you can, and if you, some of your listeners may know this, you can plot your own dots on a Google map, right? You can just load in a spreadsheet and then, right. So took a Google map, dropped in all of the schools in the state of Rhode Island and the ones that had, were offering computer science. We had a little green pointer there, a little green dot. The ones that were not, we had in red. And then we went out and we started doing these town halls and talking to parents and saying, Hey, we think it's really important that every kid has experience learning computer science and talked about all the reasons why. And we said, and look, we even created this map so you can just go and take a look at what school, you know, what your school is offering. So the parents would log in and for most of them be a red dot and they would click on the red dot and we conveniently put the name and the contact information for the principal and said, you know, if you're concerned about the fact that your school is, is a red dot, you know, call, call your principal. And so all these principals started getting calls. How, how do we get computer science happening? And then we just happened on the back end to say, hey, guys, whenever you're ready, we have some training programs for your teachers. And we have uh, some curriculum ready to go. We can do it all over the summer so that you'll be ready to go in the fall. So in uh, 18 months, we went from being, I, I believe we were the lowest uh, in the country in terms of number of schools offering computer science wow. to the first state in the country to have every school offering computer science. Wow. Now that's like Influence 101 by uh, Richard Kulata, right? Uh, what an amazing, amazing story there. And, you know, I think that that kind of brings me to just thinking about your new book, right? I just got it from Amazon a couple days ago. Thank you. Now, now you and my mom are going to be reading it. Thank you very much for buying a copy. <laughs> well, me as well as all of those parents out there. So, so tell us a little bit about the book. So in, in order to understand the book, you first need to know a little bit about me. So I am a father of four kids. They're between the ages of eight and 16. And one of the things that was was interesting is we were in our family trying to understand the right role of technology and in our family culture and how we wanted to use technology, what should be allowed, what shouldn't. And I realized that all the work that I had done in my career in education and technology had not prepared me well for figuring out the right tech culture to create in my family. And I started going out there and looking for other books and advice. And the books that were out there, Jason, they're all the, they're so negative. They're books like the boogeyman is in your kid's pocket or like <laughs> tech is making kids dumber by the day. Literally, these are the names of some of these books, right? Uh, kids are getting stupider because of tech. Like these are, these are what was out there. And that was not my experience. As I was yeah. talking with kids, both my own and others, I was seeing really creative, thoughtful kids that were trying to do good things. But but frankly, we weren't setting them up for success very well. The conversations that we never really had conversations growing up because the tech, the online world was growing up with us, right? We, we sort of grew up together with it. So there was no like intro into the digital world because it was just evolving around us. That is not the case for kids today. And kids today were sort of throwing them into this very, very complex technical world. And, and what I found was there are two flaws that in, in our conversations that we have with, with young people. The first is it tends to be very focused on the don'ts, right? Don't be a jerk online. Don't share your password. Don't post an inappropriate picture. Don't, 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 don't. It's a bunch of don'ts. Uh, and the problem with that is 
you can't practice not doing something, right? Like yeah. we actually need to be able to say, here are the do's. Here's what we want you to do with technology if we want kids to be healthy in a virtual space. And the second part is the focus of our conversations tended to be almost entirely about online safety. And while, yeah. yes, safety is incredibly important, don't, don't misunderstand that, it's a little bit like, you know, my, my 16-year-old daughter, we're learning to drive a car. And when we get in, we put on a seatbelt. Like, there's no question. The seatbelt goes on. It's it, We don't yeah. move the car until the seatbelt goes on. But we don't spend the next hour talking about the seatbelt, right? We talk about where are we going? How yeah. are we going to get there? What are the rules of the road? Who are we going with? What do we do if something goes wrong, right? And that's the same thing we need to be doing as we prepare our kids to thrive in a virtual world. Yes, we should show, you know, how to be safe. But the vast majority of the conversation should actually be about what are we doing? Where are we going? What type of people do we want to be in a virtual space? Uh, so that's the book. That's what I, I, I wrote the book, the, the guide that I wish I had had <laughs> for helping in our families create a culture of, of healthy tech use where we can really create, you know, young, young people who are using technology to engage with their communities, engage with their families, uh, help solve problems around them and help create a more inclusive uh, online environment. Yes. And of course, the book is called Digital for Good, Raising Kids to Thrive in an Online World. Where can people get it, Richard? You can get it pretty much anywhere you like. If, you, if you're into Amazon and want to go there, you can, but also local bookstores all around the country are carrying it as well. So support your local bookstore or just be super convenient and go on Amazon if you like. But I, I hope some people will check it out. I think it will, it will be a bit of a stress reliever for uh, parents and families who are feeling a little stressed out over how to limit tech use in a healthy way, as opposed to just saying, all right, you have an hour and then your screen time's over, right? Like using a clock to limit technology is actually a really bad way to do it. And so yeah. I give a whole bunch of other approaches that are healthier. And I think it will help create a happier, healthier culture for tech use in our families. And what are, what are one or two other tips that you have for parents to have a positive experience with their kids in the digital world? Well, I mean, look, one of them, this is just a really simple one, but one of them is just create a, what I call a device use agreement, right? Just create an agreement with your kids about how they are going to be using their devices. And it should not be a list of don'ts, right? So yeah. for example, in my, in our family, we are, each of our kids, it's like a little contract, right? Uh, in our family, one of the things that we ask our kids to do is help us capture family moments, so capture Ooh. pictures, capture funny things that people say every, every couple months we sit down and we just read all the like funny things that our kids have said because oh, they've been cool. you know, capturing those things. Right. Um, so, so that those, those agreements also may include things like where do we not want technology used? If phones should not be alarm clocks, right? Let's, I just want to be really clear about that. Yeah. They should not be sleeping in our kids' beds with them. That's ridiculous. And so, so we have a, a, a charging station outside of the rooms and that's where the phones live. And so it creates a more healthy separation and, and better sleep and all kinds of stuff. Those are the sorts of things we put into the, into the contract. So wow. that's one tip. If, if I can sleep in one more, I know I'm kind yeah. of on a wind me up and watch me go subject here. But, um, <laughs> but one other thing that I would slip in is it's really important that we also suggest healthy, you know, good apps that we want our kids to be using. Most parents that I talked to, I interviewed a lot of people for the book. Uh, most parents I talked to, if you say, do you ever recommend a book for your kids, right? The answer is, yeah. Oh, yes, of course. I recommend you know, books. It's very important that they're reading. And then I say, do you ever recommend apps for your kids? Ooh. And it's like crickets, like almost never. 
Like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like, if we want to be able to influence how tech is being used for, for good in our families and our communities, we should be helping to recommend and suggest apps that align with our kids' interests, that do interesting things, not just sort of wait and let the advertisements that they see determine what apps they request. So those are just two tips. There's like a hundred others, but those are those are two tips of ways that we can help improve our digital culture at home. Absolutely. So Richard, tell me about when you were a kid growing up, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh gosh, I had no, I have no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. I think I wanted to try everything. In fact, I, I what I really wanted them to have was this like a, like a subscription that you could do a job for like two weeks and then yeah. like go to another job for two weeks and you could just try out all the jobs. <laughs> I was always just, I was always ticked off that there was no way to do like a job trial. You could go yeah. to an ice cream store and try a the sampler. little mini scoops of ice cream sampler. You couldn't do that for jobs, right? Yeah. It's a, Anyway, so that's what I really wanted was the ability to do a job for for two weeks and try them all out and then see what I wanted to do. And so how did you end up in the technology and education space in the first place? Well, so I did switch my major about 13 times when I was in college. So I (laughs) kind of did create this. You did the flight, an (laughs) academic (laughs) flight, right? Yeah, I I helped uh, help my uh, college with their, uh, you know, providing extra tuition for them, I think. Um, (laughs) No, no, listen, so I I became actually, I, I wish, you know, I wish it was some great story. Like I was, I was, I was so inspired by my fifth grade teacher that I wanted to go into teaching. And by the way, I had some phenomenal teachers, Yeah. but the real reason that I went into it is because I was actually so frustrated at how bad it was. Ooh. I was looking at education. I was looking at, and, and this idea of, of trying to innovate and try to do things that, that, uh, you know, solve tough problems. I kept looking at education and thinking it, we could be doing this so much better. And, and why aren't the entrepreneurs going into education? Why aren't the, uh, you know, why aren't people that are going into startups and all that sort of that culture? Why aren't they, where are the solutions coming to rethink learning? And so that's what drove me into it is just thinking, wow. I think there, there is um, some opportunity to really shake things up here and try yeah. to try to do things better than we have been. We just, I just felt like we had become very complacent with our, uh, with education in, in this country and frankly around the world. So that's what, that's what drove me into it. I also happened to just in my, you know, career jumping around right in my even exploration, even before I was actually in my career had done a lot with technology. And I found, I was really, um, uh, impressed by how much potential technology had when it was used in, in thoughtful ways to help support people. And so I thought, man, if I could take some of those tools and use those as a way to accelerate some better practice in learning, some awesome things could happen. And so that's, that's, that's where, how I ended up. And some awesome things have happened, right? <laughs> um, Richard, tell me, how would you describe your professional brand as a leader, as an educator, as a technologist? Yeah, I mean, some of these things we've, we've sort of talked about a little bit already, but one is this finding you know, creative, non-traditional solutions to to move approaches forward. That's sort of a, a big piece. And the other part, actually, we'd also talked about is the idea of, of how much progress you can make in iterations. Yeah. Uh, and and we, we, we often, you know, I, I see a lot of times, especially in large organizations, um, this sort of boil the ocean approach, right? Which is where we try to tackle this just massive big problem and it's too big and then we can't get it done. And so we get all frustrated and say, well, nothing will ever change. And we just go back to how it was. 
And I, I have found that if we can actually take smaller bites of things, if we can learn to be, and, and you know, the, the kind of Silicon Valley term for this is minimal viable product, right? MVP. If you can, if you can look for MVPs, you can actually really move, a, you can get a lot done. And so, so those are kind of the things that, that come along with, with my brand is, is innovation, but also taking a, a large complex problems and then breaking them into small enough chunks that we can get movement. And not only does it, it come to solutions, but it, you also feel like change is happening and yeah. that gives more momentum and more goodwill and more buy-in to then tackle even bigger problems. Yeah. So give me three words that describe Richard Kulata. How would people <laughs> describe you or how would you describe yourself in three words? Okay. Well, nerdy be the first one. <laughs> Creative would be the second one, and high energy is going to be my third one. I'm putting a hyphen in there to get two uh, two words in. Absolutely, and so I love that you say nerdy because you just own it. So, so tell me why why would you describe yourself, or others might describe you as nerdy? You know, I really I geek out over uh, over technical things, right? You know, finding some new piece of software that can make life easier. Finding some, I'm like, whoa, this is really cool. Look what we can do with this, right? And yeah. most people are like, I, you're what? Are, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, so this is very fun. I, I'm always looking at are there ways that we can use technology in better ways to make our lives better, to make, to make better humans out of us all. Right. Yeah. But that means that you've got to be a little wonky with the technology. You got to, you got to kick the tires and you got to see opportunities in tech use that, uh, that maybe others don't, maybe even the developers of those technologies don't see. So yeah, that's where the nerdiness comes in. And then I love that you, you have it almost juxtaposed with high energy because oftentimes mm. we don't think of being nerdy, right. As being high energy, how do you show up with high energy, Richard? I, look, I'm a high energy nerd. That's all good. We can, <laughs> we, can, we can do that. No, no. look, I think part of the ability to tackle tough problems comes along with, you know, an, an excitement for what the possibilities are. And as a, as a leader, I think one of my, the important roles that I, that I bring is that, that excitement and that inspiration. And, and fortunately for me, and I don't know why it just has been always, it's, it's very sincere. Like I look at, I look at these, I look at opportunities. I look at where we have the ability to tackle something. I'm like, this is awesome. Like we can solve this problem, right? Like (laughs) it is very sincere. And so, so I feel like if I can help bring that to the table, smarter people can come up with the actual solutions. I'll just help make sure that we have some of the excitement and energy that we need to keep moving along, even when things get tough. Yeah. And now Richard, has have you always been this way or have you made some changes over time to be more successful or or more appropriate with the context? No, you know, it's it's a good question. I think but as, as a personality, I've always been this way. What I've learned over time are uh, some tools, some really mm. helpful, useful tools, right? Because yeah. as much as I, and, and I do believe that that sort of passion and energy and drive really matters, but y- you actually have to know there's strategy that you have to have for tools to move things along. And so I spent some time working as a, a fellow for a, a company called IDEO. It's a, it's a design company, a worldwide Love design them, company. They right? made a whole bunch of products probably in your house are made by them. You wouldn't know that because it's, it's branded by, by the name of their, of the other companies. But, but, um, but I had a chance to work with them a little bit. And one of the things that I saw was the importance of looking at the user experience yeah. and using that as a lens to get things done. And so often we go in to solve a problem and we focus on what we need to do to solve it, what we're, you know, what 
timelines. I don't know, all these other factors, right? But what we don't do, especially in learning, by the way, what we don't do is spend enough time really understanding the users in the system and what their experience is. And so that's really helpful is just stopping and spending some time understanding what the users are going through. When I was working in, in government, that's how we'd start. If we had a, a process that we're trying to work on, we'd say, stop before you do anything else. Let's go follow some users around through this process. We call it user shadowing. Uh, we actually did this at, at the uh, uh, our Department of Health a, in the state of Rhode Island. And, and there were you know some challenges we we're trying to, to figure out and get people to interact more efficiently with the system. And so we took our leaders, our senior leaders of the Department of Health, and we had them meet people at the doors they were coming in. And we should just follow these people around. I mean, we asked them permission. It would be creepy if we didn't ask permission. So we said, can we follow you around? But, but they did. And so, so we discovered all these things. We said, look, all of our signs are in language that we understand because it says the names of these departments, but is not intuitive to people who are walking into the building. When we walk in, the first person they see is a uh, state police officer who's a very nice guy, but doesn't look very friendly and also doesn't know where anything is in the building. So he can't be very helpful. Yeah, exactly. And and then at the end of that experience, we actually had members of that team say, I almost feel like we designed this whole system on purpose to be difficult for the users. Wow. And so based on that, we made some changes. We changed the signs. We changed the, you know, with our, with the state police officer there, we actually got some information about where things were in case there were some questions that came up, right? We, we reset, uh, we had some signs posted right at the beginning, color coded some things so you could help find where, where you were going. That idea of, of, and, and I, by the way, I, I've championed a, a national program for educators to do this, right? We spend a lot of time in schools talking at kids and designing for kids, but very little time actually developing empathy for what their experience is. Uh, and so a shadow a student is a campaign that we, we have been working on to try to get all uh, school leaders to spend some time actually following kids through their day. And it is so enlightening where there are opportunities to fix problems when you actually walk through an experience in somebody else's shoes. And it seems so obvious, but it seems like something that we skip over all of the time. Oh, all the time, all the time. Look, and, and actually, I got it now. I just got to give one more example. When, again, in, in Rhode Island, we uh, were trying to make our public transportation system more user friendly, and so we had this meeting, and I had all these department heads, our head of IT, our head of the these different departments that came together, and we met in our offices, which just happened to be right next to a big bus terminal. And so we, we had this meeting. We said, now we're actually going to do the meeting on the other side of town and you all have to get there and you all have to get there taking public transportation. So they walked wow. out and it was just, it was awesome. Now, what we didn't tell them is we'd hidden um, photographers uh, that were working for us in there and they were taking pictures. And you'd watch these people come up and, and these, like the bus ticket systems were so confusing. They couldn't figure it out in the maps. We'd like homeless people walking up that are like, Hey, can I help you? It looks like you don't know what you're doing. And they were like, help them buy tickets. <laughs> and then we have this one picture, you know, of one of our senior leaders all excited about finally getting his ticket. And then we have a picture of him getting on the wrong bus to go to the other side of, right. So, and then afterwards, when they finally showed up, we had all the pictures on the screen cycling through so they could wow. see. Wow. But the idea is go through the processes with your, uh, with with the users of your system. I could give you like 10 more examples of yeah. this. And that helps point you to where and how to start making change. So anyway, that's one of the tools that I've, I found is very helpful to add, you know, with, with the energy and optimism also comes some strategy. And that's one that's very helpful. Yeah. So Richard, let me flip that on you. Tell me about a time when you have observed and maybe shadowed the user experience of someone who works for you or or consumes your services. Have you ever changed something that you're doing based on that? 
Absolutely. One of those is in my communication. Sometimes one of the things that I feel like is I have gotten feedback from people who work on my teams that since my thinking is, is sort of always evolving and always that sometimes I move forward in conversations that I'm having in my brain and I, and I have not communicated those well to my teams. And, and that doesn't set them up for success. It doesn't set me up for success. So one of the things that, that I've been doing as asking, and I do, I ask my people who work with me and for me this question all the time, like what, where and how can your experience working with me be better? Uh, one of them is thinking about how to communicate where we're going more effectively. That's something that is, uh, and it's tricky to do when you say, we know what the goal is. We don't actually know exactly how to get there, right? It takes some trust to work in an environment where we say, we're learning as we go. And when you do iterative design, you don't know what you're building when you start. And, uh, but that requires even more communication and more sort of uh, engagement to help understand that there is value in the process that we're going through. As a leader, what are some things that you do to build trust so that people can go along on that ride? Yeah, I think uh, one of the things is rewarding people. Uh, and I don't just mean this, you know, monetarily, because that's not always possible, but, but, you know, reward, recognizing people who are willing to call out something that doesn't seem effective. And so one of the parts of, again, when you're doing, when you're kind of building the plane as you fly it, when you're tackling tough problems and doing it in, in an iterative way, um, you have to be willing, you have to have people who are willing to say, Hey, I don't think this is working. Here's a better approach. And I really push for people to share. And I'll often say, you know, I don't, I don't have to agree with your, with what you're thinking, but I do need to hear it. Uh, I need to hear what it is. And, and that's important. And so getting, building a culture where, where I can show that I'm okay if my idea is pulled apart is actually really important because then we understand that, that ideas, you know, an idea that I have or that you have, if there are flaws in it, if there are things that we need to do to build it, to make it better, that is not an attack on me personally. Um, so that's, that's one thing. I think the other part is just, just being very clear and open when I don't have the solutions, which is almost all the time. So it's like really easy to do that, right? It's just like, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I don't, I don't have. So, so let's figure it out together. And I think that's, um, that's helpful in sort of building a, a trusted relationship with people who are willing to go on a journey uh, when we don't know exactly what the path is going to look like. Yeah. So a couple of fun uh, final questions for you. We've been talking a little bit about your brand, but what is your favorite brand as a consumer? What can't you live without? Um, okay. So, so let me share a couple brands. I really would, should, wouldn't surprise you, but I really like brands where you can tell that extra effort has been placed to try to make the experience better for me as a user. So here's a silly one. I was just this weekend setting up uh, some new TVs in, a, in our house and we have uh, Roku boxes or, or smart TVs with the Roku operating yeah. system. I don't know if you've ever set up a new Roku TV. It is so cool the way they step you through it. It's very friendly. It's funny. They have, uh, you know, kind of humor working through this process that would normally be very a stressful technical process. Yeah. They, they do some fun things to make sure everything is working along the way and just super streamlined, easy to, to, to go through. So if you haven't done this, like honestly go find it's worth the 20 bucks it costs <laughs> to buy the little Roku box. Even if you have a smart TV, right? I'm going you out just, to buy it now. I know go through the setup. So that's a brand that I, um, that, that I really, uh, I really like. Um, there are some other brands that do that too. You know, a more obvious one that I think a lot of people probably think of is Apple, right? Uh, but Apple does a, a really good job. And, and yes, they may be uh, overpriced and they may, you know, there's other, some, some dings that you might throw in there. 
but they're very focused on having a very good uh, experience for for the end user. It feels like a special moment when you're taking something out of the box. They spend time yeah. designing the box, whereas most people would say, we're not going to design the box. It's here, it's in a bag. The product inside matters. No, the experience of that product starts before you ever turn it on. It starts when you open the box and then follows all the way through. So yeah. those are the types of brands that I, I get, I'm attracted to are, are ones that go, we have taken the time to engineer this experience in a way that will be awesome for you from the moment you get in contact with it until long after you've stopped using it. Mm. And if you were a type of car, what type of car would Richard Kulata be? Wow. I would be, what type of car? I don't know. I mean, it, it needs to be, a, again, a kind of nerdy car. So maybe like a Tesla, <laughs> you know, uh, it, with lots of programmable things and uh, and configurations, but also high tech, right? So those are the two parts that have got to be in there. So So that's probably what I'd say. And finally, Richard, what's the best career advice that you would like to pass on to our listeners? So I have two pieces of career advice that I've been given over the years that have been really helpful for me, really, really transformational for me. And and I'll share both of those. The first is uh, you can get anything done if you don't need to get the credit for it. And that was something that somebody told me, a good friend of mine, my boss at the time told me when I first came to work for the federal government, when I came to work for the CIA. And I realized this, this, you know, tight connection between being innovative and being humble. And there are so many great ideas that end up on the cutting room floor because somebody isn't willing to allow it to be somebody else's idea in order Mm. to keep it moving along. And that's a shame. And so sometimes we just have to know that that sometimes you got to just let it be somebody else's idea. And that's okay if if that's if if your goal is to really make a, an impact. Wow. So so that's the first one. The second one uh, that that uh, uh, somebody told me is um, learn to be provocative without being contrarian. Mm. And so, you know, again, in, in, in a world, if, if you're going to be an innovator, if you're going to try to think about things differently and move things along in a different way, you got to be able to call out where there are problems with the current approach, right? That's yeah. what leads us opportunities to innovate. But nobody likes somebody who just says, that's not good. That doesn't work. Nuh-uh. You know, that, that, that's, not, that's not helpful. And so finding ways to be provocative and saying, here's how we could do this very differently, dramatically differently, without just being contrarian, without just sort of throwing cold water on the current approach or the current people that are trying to do it and working very hard to do it um, is critical. And so those, those two pieces of advice, being able to do anything, you you, you can do anything you, you need to, you want to, if you don't have to get credit for it, and be provocative without being contrarian have been two you know foundational pieces of advice that I've, I've uh, leaned on for my whole career. Well, I love that, Richard. And thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for being nerdy, creative, and high energy. Jason, so thank you so much for having me. This is this is so fun. I wish we could talk like this every day. Exactly. And everybody go out and get the book, Digital for Good. And I'll be back in just a few moments with my final thoughts. Are you tired of not being recognized for your work? Are you ready to rise above the rest and accelerate to the next level? The Lead With Your Brand Career Breakthrough Mentoring Program will help you take control of your career, develop your own unique brand, and catapult you to a whole new level of success. You are a top performer, and the Lead With Your Brand Career Breakthrough Mentoring Program is what you need to get you there. Visit leadwithyourbrand.com to learn how. 
Wow, what an amazing conversation with Richard Kulata, the CEO of the International Society for Technology in Education. You know, Richard just had so many tips, and I just loved his nerdy, high energy. But you know, one of the things that I really took away from him was this whole notion of MVP. What is that minimal, viable product? I love that Richard said we oftentimes try and boil the ocean, and so many times when people are working on their career brand, they try and do that exact same thing. What Richard said is you really have to break everything down into little bite-sized chunks so that you can make incremental change every single day. And that's the same thing as you think of leading with your brand. Break it down into our five steps to lead with your brand and take a look at one or two little things that you can tackle each day and each week that get you closer to the brand that's going to help you reach your career breakthrough. Well, that's our show for today. If you loved what you heard, make sure that you hit that follow button on iTunes or wherever you are getting your podcasts. Of course, follow me on social media. I'm at Jason Patria on all platforms, and I share tons of cool tips and tricks on LinkedIn. And remember, don't be a boring old commodity like coffee. Make sure in your career, you are a super premium brand like Starbucks. You've been listening to Lead With Your Brand, the podcast that explores and uncovers exceptional career success stories and inspiring personal brand journeys with your host, personal branding expert, diversity advocate, and keynote speaker, Jason Patria. Remember to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us at leadwithyourbrand.com.